a reading from the first letter of Peter. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, all the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. To you, O Lord. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph brought then Joseph brought a linen cloth and, taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you send your spirit upon us and grant us peace, that as we sit here with your scriptures, as we listen for your voice, that you would open our ears to hear you, and would you give light to our eyes that we would not be limited as we gaze upon you, that we would not be limited 
by what we can see, but rather that you would pull back the curtain and reveal to us something of the glory which you have revealed to your world and your son. And would you renew us as we gaze upon you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our series between Easter and the day of Pentecost. We've been doing a series where uh, we are exploring the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the, the oldest and most widely used statements of, of the Christian faith that the church around the world uses. And it's one that we use in our own worship here at City Church pretty much every single week as we give voice to our own personal, public, and corporate profession of faith. And so these are very familiar words to many of us. But what do we mean when we say them? And what does the creed do? in our life together as the church, as we rehearse it and recite it together. Well, during the course of the series, we've been reflecting on this analogy that the creed is like a map, right? When you go on a trip or you go on a hike, you use a map, or at least you should. That will help you get to where it is that you ought to go. Um, and if you use it well, it leads to destinations or perhaps even to vistas that you would not have been able to reach without it, right? But on the other hand, if you misuse the map, uh, if you keep your head buried in it and never look up, what happens? The map itself becomes the very thing that obscures the view of that which you were seeking to see in the first place. So when I was in college, I had, um, I had a habit of going on road trips with my buddies. We did this every year after college. We'd get in the car and we'd drive across the country and we would use a map. And this was, the, this was before we had cell phones, before you were using Google Maps or Waze or whatever to plot your course. We actually had to use the giant, big Rand McNally Atlas. And, one, and, and we were 19 and dumb, and we would make games, right, as we would travel down the road. And one of the games was whoever was sitting in the passenger seat would sort of subtly take the steering wheel, and whoever was sitting in the driver's seat would take the great big Rand McNally Atlas and hold it up in front of his face, and we'd pull up beside another car driving down the interstate. And then the guy who was in the back seat would have the video camera videotaping the expression of the driver of the other car who happens to look over and see the driver of our car with his face just buried in this giant atlas, obviously unable to see the road. And it's amazing to see these videos of the faces of the other driver as you watch just how badly it must be about to go, right, when you're misusing a map so ridiculously. It's freaky to look over and see the person next to you doing that. But sadly, I do think that actually is a, a kind of portrait of much of the church today. It's, I mean, albeit it's a, at least a true-to-life caricature, right, of, of the church, uh, especially in our educated circles, where we get so into our theology, so into the map, that we lose sight of God and what God is doing. Theology for its own sake is actually one of the more insidious cancers that threatens the church, especially in our educated circles. And the reality, the sad reality, the scary reality that we should be on guard and watching for in our own lives is that so often those who are most into theology can become those who are not that into God. And that can be a profoundly dangerous thing. On the other hand, that's not to dismiss the value of theology itself, right? It's not, the problem isn't there with the theology. The problem is with its misuse, 
right? Because a deficiency in theology is its own kind of problem. Driving with no map is its own kind of problem. But what we're after in this series, what we're after in our life together in the church, is an, an exploration of the creed in which we hone our map-reading skills, not for the sake of reading the map, but for the sake of using it, that we may discover vistas and destinations we would not have discovered otherwise, and that we would lift our eyes and actually gaze upon the panorama of the glory of God from these places that the creed will lead us when we use it well. God himself is the landscape, as we've said. Knowing God is the adventure, and the creed is the map that, when used well, leads us further up and further in, if I may borrow the phrase from C.S. Lewis, further up and further in to life with God in God's world. That's what we're after in this series. So let's turn our attention to this little phrase in the middle of the creed. He descended to the dead, or as it is often said, he descended into hell. And what does that mean? And why does the version that we use say descended to the dead when other versions say descended into hell? Are we just watering down offensive language? Are we trying to soften something that was older and perhaps sounds harsh to our ears? I've actually heard that accusation before uh, from others who are coming from other church backgrounds and come to worship with us. And I've even been in a worship service once before where the, the printed version of the creed that the congregation was using said descended to the dead, but someone felt the need to loudly and boldly say over the top of the congregation, descended into hell, as if to take a stand and not participate in what he perceived to be a kind of watering down of the original and more authentic version. But the truth is that the original wording of the creed um, doesn't actually say either to the dead or into hell in so many words. It actually says to the lowest or to the lowest parts. And almost certainly, as we begin to explore what that means, what we'll find is that what you and I have in mind, when we think uh, about Jesus' descending to the dead, or if you think about Jesus descending into hell, what you and I have in mind is actually quite different from what the earliest Christians had in mind, the earliest confessors of our creed. What they meant by the lowest parts of the earth, what the biblical writers meant when they talked about the lowest parts of the earth, is what is often called Sheol in the Hebrew or Hades in the Greek. And that's like two different words for the same kind of place. It wasn't a place of punishment. It wasn't a place of purgation for sins, but rather simply the realm of the dead. It was how they understood the cosmos. That's where the dead went. Sort of like if you want to think about it as like the basement of the cosmos, the place farthest away from heaven where God lives. Psalm 49 and 89 talk about Sheol as a place that no one can avoid. Ecclesiastes 9 talks about it as the destination of both the righteous and the wicked. Job and the Psalms talk about Sheol as this dark and quiet place whose inhabitants are shadowy, weak versions of previously vibrant people. In some places, as we read through Scripture, we see descriptions of Sheol as a place where the dead were cut off from God, 
That's what we see in like Psalm 88 or in Isaiah 38. But in other places, we see a more hopeful picture, a place where God's presence actually extends to the depths of Sheol. Like in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The biblical authors, they speak in diverse ways as they contemplate the mystery of death, as they lament and mourn the loss of it, as they contemplate the unknown character of crossing over that threshold. And what we see when we get to the New Testament is both Peter at Pentecost and Paul in Ephesians pick up the same language of the Psalms to describe what happened to Jesus between these events of the cross and the empty tomb. And this is where it gets weird, like really weird. You and I, as we think about the story of Christ, um, at least I'll speak for myself, as I think about the story of Christ, maybe this is the same for you, you know, my mind tends to move quickly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Holy Saturday in between is almost like this, it gets just passed over so quickly between the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the biblical authors and this map of the creed lead us down a trail that we may not otherwise choose to go. And they take us to this vista that overlooks the mystery of Holy Saturday when Jesus descended to the dead, to the lowest places of the earth. And in the early church, as well as in some sectors of the church today, there's this tradition that's called the harrowing of Hades, which is this idea that Jesus, after he died, uh, raided the realm of the dead, unlocking the dungeon gates, essentially, plundering Sheol, so that he may lead the great exodus out of death, out of the grave, and bring with him a host of captives. And that seems to be something like what Peter has in mind in this text that we just read as he talks about Jesus and going to make a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey. And if we were going to read Peter a little bit further in and go into chapter 4, we would see that he continues and says, like, for this is the reason that the gospel was proclaimed to the dead so that even though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. What in the world does that mean? I don't fully know, to be quite honest with you, but it does seem to be in keeping with what the apostle says in Philippians 2 when he says that the end goal of Jesus' descending into death is that every tongue, even those under the earth, that is in the lowest places, should proclaim that Jesus is Lord. As we follow the map of the creed to this outlook, this overlook, what view do we get of the glory of God? How does this little sentence, he descended to the dead, lead us further up and further into this mystery of our faith? Well, I really think the main thing for us to know and to ponder here is simply that Jesus fully died. He fully and completely and truly died. However you think about death, 
right? And however you seek to make sense of the mystery of what lies beyond, which is obviously very different in different cultures and languages, we imagine that, we think about that, we explore that in so many different ways. But the point, as the biblical authors and as the writers of the creed express in their own language and in their own categories where Jesus went and what Jesus did, the very point that they're trying to make is that Jesus completely and fully experienced everything that you and I experience as human beings, even the fullness of death. Jesus wasn't just clinically dead, where like his heart had stopped, but before oxygen had been so cut off to his brain that he could never come back, he was resuscitated. It's not that. And Jesus wasn't only appearing to be dead, as if, as if it was all just kind of like a David Copperfield magic trick, right? Jesus wasn't mostly dead, which isn't a real thing. That's from the Princess Bride. <laughs> he really and truly died. And he really and truly was dead for a time and stayed that way fullness of what we experience in death he experienced himself and here's why that is so important for us to confess and to know and to treasure in our hearts as this precious truth where you will go he has gone there's nowhere you're going to go there's nowhere you can go that he has not gone before you And for those of you who have lost loved ones and have had to let go as your beloved have crossed over that horizon past which we cannot see, what do you need to know? There's nowhere they have gone where Jesus has not himself gone. Nowhere. He has already been to that place. And that place That's where he came back from. Let that sink in. He has gone there, and he has come back. And as the biblical writers imagine what it was that he was doing there, he was unlocking the doors. He was raiding the dungeons. There's no place in the cosmos beyond his reach. No place he hasn't been willing to go. No place he's unable to seek and to find those who are there. And that is a great and profound mystery. Not sure how it all works. No one does. It's a view that the map doesn't give us, but what it does give us is this glimpse of God and who he is and what he's done in Jesus. This God who has come further down and further out in order to bring his people home to himself. And from that place, he calls us with him to venture further up and further in, into life in his world with him. And so what we need to see is that the hope of our descending Savior, it doesn't just apply to our future, and it doesn't just apply to the future of those we love. But it really also applies to all of life, doesn't it? It applies to the ways in which we may or may not descend into our past, into our present. 
the places in our lives that seem so dark or so remote or so hidden, so far beyond the boundary of where God would want to go or be willing to go or be able to go or able to help. The picture we get of Jesus in the creed and in these texts that gave birth to it is a Jesus who has gone there and a Jesus who will go there and a Jesus who is able to do things there to lead out a host of captives. Even there, in your addiction, in your loneliness, in your hurt, in the traumas of your past, in your heartbreak, in the utter chaos of your relationships, in the other chaos of your home and of your life and your worries and your anxieties and your life plan that's not working out, in all of those places, even there, God is willing to go. And even there, you may seek and find him. The path further up and further in with God as we begin to discern it by way of the map of the creed, and particularly this part of the map of the descent of Jesus into the dead, is meant to show us that our path of ascending with him is a path of descending with him. Descending with him into our own stories and into our own lives. Descending with him into the needs of others around us, into the relational brokenness of our world. And as you think about your own story and your own past and your own family of origin or the traumas that you've suffered or the harm that you've done or the opportunities that you've wasted or the beautiful things that have slipped away or that you hope to attain one day, will you descend with him into the darkness and the fragmentation of all those shards of your story so that with him you may begin to participate in this work of unlocking the dungeon. Will you recognize he's the one who goes there with you, who meets you there, and who leads you out of the captivity of the depths of those places? Can you believe that he'll go there with you? Can you believe that he's gone there before you? This is the God who has made you, who loves you, who knows you, and who longs for you to know him, who longs for you to embark on the adventure of life with him, and is the God who in Jesus has descended to the lower parts of the earth, to the lowest parts of your own life, the God who descended to the dead. Will you gaze upon him? Will you recognize the beauty of the vista that the creed gives us as we look upon God in his glory and God in his power and God in his incredible humility and willingness to help? And will you recognize that even there, where you are, where you need to go, where your loved ones are, even there, he will meet you. Even there, you may turn to him and seek and find him. And from there, he will bring you back, leading with him a host of captives. That's the view from this vantage point of the creed. May we lift our eyes and behold 
the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we give you thanks and praise for your son Jesus. We give you thanks for the abundance of your love and the lavishness of your grace. We give you thanks for the courage of our Savior who willingly plunged into the depths, who willingly went further out, further down, so that he might rise and bring us with him. God, give us grace and strength to embrace your son who embraces us and to embark on that journey of rising from the depths. We need your help for that, and so we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.